0: we start the show today, we're actually going to share some words from our sponsor, MyTech, who is supporting today's event. So let's hear from them now.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. My name is Adam Desmond, and I am the UK&I Country Manager at MyTech Systems. It's great to be here at another 11FS After Dark event, as we start to see the light at the end of the tunnel in a year like no other one that has seen the rise of technology and the struggle to do business purely online. It truly is the age of digital identity and mass adoption of digital commerce, an age that will remain after the pandemic has ended. MyTech has seen an unprecedented growth across the financial services sector, as the battle to onboard customers is seen as a great barrier and a great opportunity. Working closely with our customers, we have helped build better onboarding experiences safely proving the identities of those wanting to open new accounts, apply for essential government services and sign up to marketplaces for online shopping, while also helping to identify and protect against the ever-present fraud risk. As part of the ongoing relationship with 11FS and the FinTech Insider, we're proud to be part of this After Dark event. We hope you enjoy the discussions. MyTech trusts you will enjoy the
2: show.
0: Hello everybody and welcome to Fintech Insider After Dark. My name is Sarah Kachansky and I'm joined virtually today by my colleague and co-host Adam Davis. How's it going, Adam?
3: Uh, it's very well, Sarah. Thank you very much. Thanks for the intro. I've got myself one of these poured exclusively before the show. <laughs> it looks okay. Anyone from Ireland who sort of wants to, you know... Put a rating or a metric on that. I think I've done myself quite quite proud there. For, uh, for those, celebrating for, St Paddy's.
0: For, the, for those listening and not viewing, what are you, what are you
3: brandishing ah, at me? Very true. This is a, this is a Guinness. Uh, and I must say that normally on my backdrop, I've got a special edition Guinness that just sits there and has sat there all the way through lockdown. And today, finally, it's it's never been more apt. It's come into <laughs> its own and its element. So I'm going to sort of sit with a slant now for the rest of the show.
0: Well, it's very appropriate. I'm <laughs> glad that you've matched your your backdrop to our, to our event today. Um, so this is our third Digital After Dark, and based on the success so far and the amazing engagement we've had from our audiences, we have obviously decided to do it again. Uh, in tonight's show, we're going to be talking about open finance. Now, open finance is easily one of the most talked about topics in the financial world right now, and there are both amazing opportunities to look out for and also a lot of hurdles. There are concerns, including around GDPR and whether or not we actually have the technical infrastructure in place to implement this sort of scheme. Uh, Joining us today, we have guests who are all leading players in this space, and we could not be more excited. Uh, So, let's reveal our first guest. Joining us today, we have Dan Kahn, Open Finance Lead at Plaid. Dan, welcome to After Dark. How are you doing today?
4: Oh, excellent. It's uh, still morning here in California, so I'm having a uh, dark beverage, but it's a coffee, (laughs) not a Guinness.
0: (laughs) I did suggest that whiskey goes quite well with coffee, but um, we thought that... Yeah, maybe an Irish whiskey would be appropriate today. Yes. (laughs) Um, All right, brilliant. Well, um, let's next reveal our second guest. Uh, We have Jack Wilson, Head of Policy and Public Affairs at TrueLayer. I can't hear, Jack, but I'm hoping everybody else can. Last, by no means least, we are also joined by Nelixer Devlukia, founder at Payments Solved. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing? Hello. You jumped the gun on me. How are you doing today?
2: I'm really well, thank you. And uh, so far, so good. I've had meetings all day where I've not had to be asked to come off mute. (laughs) (laughs) That is
0: the dream. It
2: is, isn't it? But who knows if that run will continue. (laughs)
0: <laughs> All right well without further ado let's on with the show. So the first part of the show today we are going to be discussing open finance um, and the differences between that and open banking. So um, shall we start off with who wants to who wants to give me a really quick overview of, of, of the differences between open finance and open banking?
5: I'd love to do that. Go for it. I'm Jack by the way at uh... My mute was on before. Sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) Do not worry. Um, So, open banking is the beginning of open finance. Open banking empowers consumers to use their banking data through third-party providers, like TrueLayer is one and Plaid is another. And it is based on some legislation that basically gives the consumer that right and gives third-party providers fintechs um, the ability to access the data. Through dedicated what are called APIs, application programming interfaces. So, the reason it's the beginning of Open Finance is because it's restricted in what you can access. Um, Open banking um, means you can only access payment accounts. So, that's restricted to current accounts and credit cards. We want um, Open Finance to give consumers a holistic view and holistic control of their financial affairs. So, we want this to extend to savings accounts, for example, mortgages, pensions. So ultimately you'll be able to use an app and see all of your finances in one place. And that is the epitome of open finance. Um, and additionally, we want the ability to move funds between the accounts. So not it's not just about data, it's also about having right access, the ability to um, initiate payments
0: and what does it mean for, for your, your average person on the street? What does this mean for consumers? Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Dan, you want to pick that up or, or, or Nilek. So, you know, what is... What yeah, is I'm
4: happy to take that one. So, I mean, Jack hit the nail on the head. Open banking is one small piece that's based on legislation that is starting to implement this concept of open finance. Open finance, the idea is really based on a very simple concept, which I think most people agree on, which is that we as consumers, um, whether we're individuals, small businesses, or corporations, should be able to control our financial data and share it with the parties with which we choose, right? And all of the benefits actually come from placing that control directly in the hands of the end user, especially within the consumer and small business space. We've kind of moved into this world where we got rid of paper statements, which were really easy and straightforward to say, like, I have a paper statement, I'm going to share this data in order to qualify for a mortgage or a loan or some other type of experience. And we moved to this digital world where it seems like the data controllers, you know, the financial institutions uh, are the ones who actually own the data, but that's wrong. Um, and it's just like a little bit of a cork of history of how we made that transition from paper to digital. And so open finance is moving back into the world of consumer control, consumers owning their data. And as Jack said. Consumers being able to benefit um, from sharing their data. That's sort of all of the read concepts. And then the write concepts are like being able to make payments on accounts which you own. And that's really cool. But then there's also this concept of what data beyond simple bank account data. So like we have, you know, savings and checkings accounts to start with in the UK, but like we're seeing in the US that there's actually demand for all types of different financial data. So investment accounts student loan and other debt accounts, um, we're actually starting to see demand for payroll data and being able to verify your employer and income data. So taking like a step back, open finance is really going to be a very long term movement. And different countries are at very different stages with regards to both implementation and
0: regulation. So on that point, um, it does anywhere have a plan for implementing this so there are obviously lots of different ways that you can go about open banking which we've talked about many times um before on on podcast podcasts and in blog posts and and there's a um, top-down approaches there's bottom up approaches there's letting the market decide. Um, I'm going to throw that one over, over to Nelixa because do you know is there do you know of anywhere that has a plan in place and if there is anywhere are they taking learnings from what's been done previously with open banking?
2: So, absolutely. I think many jurisdictions have plans in place. Uh, The UK had a plan with the uh, CMA order and OBIE, um, you know, parallel to the PSD2 implementation. Europe had a plan with PSD2. Um, Brazil has now got an open banking, open finance initiative. Mexico, many other jurisdictions in the world. Um, And some have taken, as you said, Sarah, the the top down approach. Others have taken the bottom up approach. Australia in particular uh, didn't start with an open banking approach. They started with a consumer rights approach to say that actually consumers own their data, they have the right to access that data, um, and they looked far beyond financial data. They actually uh, are in this sort of um, open data world. So we've, we've taught open banking, open finance, and actually beyond that, you've got open data. And, and I think the question for all jurisdictions is what's the journey that you're going to take to get there because if you if we're moving to a world of digital lives we've seen the digitalization of payments we've seen the changes in payments during uh the pandemic and if we're going to have a world in which we live digital lives then the connectedness of your data is not just about your financial services data Uh, there's a bigger picture there that i think needs to be addressed
0: so, so, do we think that a top-down? Well, what do we think might be the right approach? Does anybody have any ideas on that? Um, you've all got well, ideas. Adam, you go first, and then I well, will come. I will come to everybody.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, I suppose the reason why open finance now is is such a hot topic. I suppose anchoring it to something in uh, close to home in the UK is the uh, the CFI, so the call for input that the FCA. Um, throughout uh, to the industry last year, which we all sort of opined on and threw our opinions into. Um, That's really interesting. Um, That through the scope of what open finance could be wide open, but also sort of put some parameters around it um, in terms of what their definition is. And, um, you know, uh, I I think everyone around the world's probably got a slightly nuanced definition of what it can be. Um, I think, you know, the the difference between, you know, top down, bottom up really is is around um, whether or not, uh, I guess, how much... um, uh, regulation or frameworks or um, standardization, a central body in a country will uh, will overlay onto the rolling out of open finance um, versus, let's say, and then obviously in the UK is a, a classic example of that with the uh, through the OBIE and uh, the frameworks and the standardization that's occurred um, through open banking. I think in the States, you've got pretty much the polar opposite where you've got very much a market-led approach um, where in order to get this data and access data um, for a customer to do that and consent a third party to doing it, um, you have to do sort of end-to-end if you like contracts from um, the customer, but ultimately the third party and and the bank or the financial institution that's got your data. I don't think there's, uh, I don't think, anyway, in my opinion, there's one trumps the other. I think given open banking was nine banks, um, fintechs without legacy who were building infrastructure for this specific purpose, having a standardized way of doing that um, worked extremely well. I think throwing it open to the scope of open finance as it's been defined in the CFI uh, standardisation like that might get a little bit messy.
0: <laughs> okay, Jack, what were your thoughts on that? Because you um, you, you were keen to sort of express an opinion on this one.
3: Yeah,
5: I, I totally agree with that last point Adam made um, about open finance, throwing it out and saying, everyone open your doors. Um, that would be messy. Um, we, we've been arguing for really strict sequencing and making sure that you start with small baby steps. It should first begin with broadening out from the open banking base. So what we've got now is access to current accounts and credit cards. What we need next is access to savings accounts. um, And then you broaden it out logically to investments, um, pensions, mortgages, and you don't have to do that all at once. A big bang approach would be a real mistake. We've also kind of taken the approach that it should be a mix of a top down and a bottom up approach. PSD2, which laid the foundations for open banking, was very much a a top-down approach led by the the commission. Um, It took five years to implement a really detailed set of rules, a really granular set of technical legislation. So we think it should start with a principles-led approach where something like the directive says consumers have a right to access their data via third parties, but then it should stop somewhere before it gets to really granular technical rules and and say, look, the industry is best placed to collaborate and develop the actual technical standards for doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, And we we think that should be facilitated through uh, something akin to the Open Banking Implementation Entity, but something that is broader in, in remit and scope. But something that still has the, the kind of the teeth to do what OBIE did to, to mandate standards and um, the way that those standards are implemented.
0: Okay, and I think I mean Dan. Just to give you the final word on this one, because you're in a slightly different sort of location, you have a slightly different experience, I suppose, of how open banking has has rolled out. Obviously, Plaid is is global entity, but based on you know what what you've seen, can you give us just I suppose a quick summary of of your opinion on this one?
4: Yeah, so I'll I'll actually crib from our head of the UK, Keith Gross, because I heard him put this uh, a specific way, which I really liked, which is that. The UK and the EU are probably like five years ahead on standardization, regulation, and even defining how some of those APIs should look for specific categories. But the US is probably five years ahead on implementation. And the way that we see this shaking out, um, especially because there are so many financial institutions in the US, over 5,000 FDIC-insured banks, over uh, 4,000 deposit-insured credit unions, just we're not gonna be able in the short term to mandate that they all implement the same APIs and get there in any reasonable time frame. But Plaid, we've made a commitment that 75% of our traffic uh, will be committed to APIs by the end of this year, 2021. And what that means is that we're working with the industry. So we've signed data access agreements with specific large financial institutions. We serve on the board of a market-led standards organization called uh, the Financial Data Exchange. And then we also have our own technology, Plaid Exchange, which is an opt-in API for smaller financial institutions and neobanks that actually want to be supported uh, data providers onto the Plaid network. And so you know, this combination of approaches, I think Jack's exactly right, that you know, we, we want to have clear principles, but it really gets challenging when we say we're going to have one standard and it has mm-hmm. to be implemented because... What happens if we make some wrong design decisions? Um, then we end up in a world where, you know, somebody like the FCA has to go back to the industry and have a whole consultation to say, like, we wrote this mm. rule, say, for 90-day reauthentication, It actually doesn't serve consumers. And now we have to figure out how we're going to architect around this. And, you know, it's, it's just a tough situation.
0: Well, it sounds like we're all in agreement that perhaps we need to take a slightly different approach this time around. And I think, um, just to go back to Nilix's earlier point, Australia has been trying to get not only one industry, but three industries to agree on some standards. And I don't know how they ever thought that perhaps was going to be an easy job, but good luck to them. Um, And with that, you know, sort of hinted about it there. Let's move on to the next section of of this evening, which is chatting about some of the issues and concerns that have been identified related to open finance. Um, And I think the big one, possibly, certainly, for, for consumers but you know also for, for providers who're getting involved in this is the protection of the data that's being um, transmitted around here because the whole you know data is at the core and at the heart of open finance. So, um, Nelixa, I'll come to you first, but do you think that there's already an adequate framework of data rights in place to handle, you know, what open finance might unleash? Or do you think that we need to um, make sure that that's considered when open finance is being implemented, that that perhaps maybe we need some new data protection rules or data protection rights to go along with this?
2: I think we have um, strong consumer data rights, for want of a better description uh, in the UK, but I think that as we move to open finance, open data, we do need to reconsider how that is structured and framed because I think that one of the biggest challenges um, in this space is the onward sharing of data Um, because obviously once a firm has access data, they have that data And I know there is all this debate about, well, customers consent or don't consent and how transparent is the consent and do people know what they've consented to? But the bottom line of that is that at some point, it's very likely that that data is going to be shared with another party and maybe another party. And consumers are never really actually going to know if they have um, a data breach, if they have a fraud, whether it's in any way linked to some of that sharing of the data. And I think that that's gonna be one of the big ticket issues that all regulators um, and governments are gonna to have to think about going forward is to how is that managed? Because you know, if I share my data today, something could happen two, three years down the line where that data has somehow maybe been shared or been hacked by somebody else, I'm never going to know as a consumer Um, And I think that that's something that has to be addressed in order to actually build trust. Because obviously, most of us, you know, are happy to share data where we believe that we're getting some value from the service we're getting. And I think that just on that point, the, the concept of data barter has to be addressed as well. You know, because do we all actually really understand what we're sharing and what we're giving up? by getting our services for free because actually they're not for free are they we're paying with our data um and then i think if those of those sort of big ticket things can be considered and addressed you know a framework can flow from that
0: yeah i mean i think i think from that Point you know that the, the, there's consumer understanding, and then there's consumer control, and then there's also you know being being able to hold firms accountable for for where data is going, who's got it, who had it last, who's got a copy of it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So when we're talking about um, Control. I think perhaps as we've we've agreed here that the end control needs to sit with the customer. If this whole thing is about it being my data and my access to it, then surely I'm the one who should control who has it and where it goes. Um so so Jack, how what are your thoughts on, on how we ensure that terms and conditions are, are easy to understand? You know, how do you how do you make sure people know where their data is, who's got it? And I think the most important thing, how do they turn that access off if they want to? How do we make it easy? Because right now, in some parts of the EU, it's a blinking nightmare to get people to tell you how much data they've got you have to fill in paper forms and things yeah
5: I mean firstly nothing should be hidden in terms and conditions you know if we're talking about the the big long document that sits somewhere behind a link and PSD2 very much is opposed to that as well it asks for explicit consent and explicit consent means that the consumer is informed about what data is being accessed why it's being accessed Um, who it's being shared with. All of this needs to come up front when the service is um, being agreed to. So this is in the face of the consumer and they have to make an active and informed decision about the data that they're sharing. So none of that information should be hidden in terms and conditions. The point that uh, Nalixa made about onward transmission of data is a very tough one because Obviously, PSD2 and GDPR are about empowering consumers to be able to access their data, to retrieve it from the institutions who have traditionally kind of sat on it like a like a greedy dragon sitting on gold. You know? So, once the consumers retrieved it, what happens then? It's it's kind of out out in the in the wild. Um, that's kind of the perception, but actually, the firms that are tasked with data retrieval like the, the fintechs, third-party providers, um, they have obligations to to do that retrieval securely and with consent and to only act on the instructions of the consumer. So if the consumer instructs a, a third party to share their data with like a mortgage provider, for, for example, um, or a pension provider um, in order to facilitate a different service, then the TPP does that legally and then the data is passed at the instruction of the customer to that other institution. Um, and that other institution is then the custodian of the data and they are subject to the really strong rules of GDPR. So if they were to then you know, sell that data or pass it on without obtaining the permission of their customer, um, then they would be breaching strong regulations. So there is, like Nelixa said, a really strong uh, customer data protection regime in place for data, um, I think if if you were to place uh, responsibilities on the the fintech who is retrieving the data to manage its onward sharing down the line, you would be placing a very big responsibility on that third party provider. Um, w- whereas there are already legal obligations on whoever is down the chain.
4: Yeah, I think you know just to jump in on what Jack said there is a huge opportunity for us here as an industry. And I don't know if we incepted you, Sarah, with saying it's my data, but like at Plaid, we've actually built a site which is in beta, but it's available publicly and you can go to it, it's (laughs) my.plaid.com, And you can see where your data was shared. Um, You can see, you know, which financial institutions you've shared data from. So mine would say like Chase, American Express, East Cambridge Savings Bank, which is a small bank where I grew up. Um, maybe like a Chime or a Varro if I have a Neobank account. And then I can see which applications I've shared it with. I'm a fintech nerd, so it's like 20 different applications. <laughs> and at any point in time, I can revoke consent in a granular way at the institution level or at the app level or revoke all of my consents. Um, you know, Plaid, we're thinking about this from a how do we go beyond what GDPR or CCPA, which seems to be the strongest data privacy law in the United States does, or in Canada, where there's a different uh, data protection regime. You know, all of the markets that we're in, we want to go a step beyond in terms of transparency, in terms of placing control in the hands of the end user. And then lastly, work with the industry so that any portal that you go to, whether it's the FinTech app, the data aggregator, or the bank, you can always have that visibility and control so that you do know and you are informed where your data is. You can revoke it when it's no longer needed. And, you know, this is really a lot better than the status quo that exists today. And it's also better than the status quo from 20 or 30 years ago, when we had those paper statements, and maybe somebody was taking your information making a photocopy and putting it in a file cabinet where it would sit for like 30 or 50 years.
3: Yeah.
0: Does that, what you're talking about there, Dan, just just out of interest, is that data that has been transmitted or handled by Plaid, or is that, sorry, is, you know, when you're saying my data, who I've shared it with, is that just something that Plaid has seen and been able to, to yeah. pull? What if, I've, what if I've shared it using an, a, another infrastructure player or, a, so, you know, so a So today that's guy? only
4: for Plaid, but the idea is that we want to make this technology intercompatible. It's part of the reason we sit on standards bodies like FDX in the United States, so that we can bring these ideas to the table, Some of our large bank partners, especially in the U.S., also are very forward thinking on this. You know, Wells Fargo and Chase have been really great partners for us that we've publicly announced where, you know, this data is going to be available um, via the Plaid portal, but it's also available on the bank website. And, you know, to the extent that you've shared data with other applications like, say, an Intuit, which manages like Mint.com and TurboTax, you would also be able to see that there. So, I think it's an emerging space, but one where we really have a big opportunity as an industry to go above and beyond, kind of the minimum compliance burden, and actually say like the the practices and techniques and technology that we're bringing forward are net beneficial to the customer, the products and fintech apps that they're using, they're opting into. Um, the banks have the equal opportunity to build unique experiences that are really valuable for the customer. And everybody's going to end up better off. It's it's not like an either-or situation.
0: So, Nelix, I mean, I think, do you think that that's good for consumers? Is that is that reasonable for consumers? Or is or is there something else that you, you'd like to see happen?
2: Well, I think, I mean, both Dan and Jack are absolutely right in that, you know, consumers, and you yourself said, consumers can have control, can be given control. But except for the payments, there's like us. Who's actually going to do it? You know, this this is the this is the sort of balance I think that we need to think about going forward. Is you know which is what should be left in consumer control and where does there need to be? And although it sounds a bit Big Brotherish, maybe a bit of oversight and, and regulatory requirements. Because uh, even in in the um, in the example that Dan gave, you know, which is great, I can see if I'm on my plan, I can see who my data has been shared with, but I don't control what they've done with it or who they've shared it with or you know that's only one step of the journey and I just think I mean you know we all hope that these services are going to grow they're going to take off they're going to become ubiquitous but how many consumers as with all things you might do it at the beginning where you're not really sure and you want to keep a track of it but as it becomes the norm how many people are really going to go and check and monitor and track and and that's I think the real challenge we have going forward. I don't have the answers to how it's balanced, but I think it it is going to have to be that balance of consumer control but also some sort of protections there in the background as well.
0: I mean, it, yeah, it's 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 got it's got to be a balance, and, it, and it's tricky to achieve that. I mean, Adam, I'm going to let you have the the final word on this section. You know, is data the biggest hurdle, or do you think there are other things out there that that could be more of an issue? Uh, I,
3: th- I think the consent management uh, is is for me is is probably the most important, and making that process for a customer to be able to manage their consents. Uh, usable. You know, uh, Nelix, you just mentioned, you know, how are we going to get customers or how are we going to encourage customers to see who they've subscribed to, who they've consented to, etc. You know, there's things like proactive notifications. There's a lot of, you know, work that's gone on in terms of like uh, app-to-app redirection to making the whole process just uh, a lot easier to use, if you like. And I think um, whoever um, can make, I guess, subscription management uh, from a consent perspective a... uh, What's the word um, from a UI perspective? A delight. <laughs> if that can ever happen, uh, fingers crossed it can. Then I think they'll win the day because I think it's a massive opportunity to be that trusted, you know, that trusted advocate on behalf of the customer. And look, I mean, I've said it before. Banks are in a fantastic position to do that. You know, they're in a. Um, I mean, so are the third parties, obviously. Dan, Jack, doffing the cap. But you know, the, the banks are also, you know, historically extremely trusted. Um, and, you know, working in a bank before, working, you know, for an, uh, an open finance, open banking implementation before is something that, that we looked at, which is the position of the bank to actually manage the consents on behalf of the customer, just because you've got that, you know, that, that trust relation, trusted relationship already built up over, you know, many, many years. Um, but ma- just make it usable.
0: <laughs> yes. And on that final point, we're going to continue now on a slightly more positive note. We're going to be looking in this section at the opportunities that open finance um, makes available. So, we're going to start off um, by kind of a a hot topic and and one of the opportunities that a lot of um, potential providers have picked up on, which is the ability for open finance to allow consumers to make more informed decisions based on the fact that they will have um, a better or a more holistic picture of their their financial situation because they can can see it all in one place, they can have access to all that data. Um, So, you know do we do we think that this this is this is a possibility do we think that um this makes makes a difference do we think that it will make it easier to get advice i suppose um you know to get to get in, information about yourself to advisors i don't know who wants to go first on this one Alexa. perhaps you i know you have a a keen perspective on the consumer point of view
2: so yes absolutely i mean open banking open finance you know that that's the sort of goal isn't it to actually have consumers manage their financial services in a better, more productive way. Um, I, th- I think, though, that you've always got that curve, haven't you, of those who engage, want to do it, give it a go. It's how are you going to bring those people along who are not so engaged, who are not necessarily going to be, you know, see the benefits that can be, come from having you know, this snapshot view, having sort of automated ability to maybe sweep into savings or to put it into investments. And obviously there's all the ancillary products that are already on the market, which allow sort of more retail consumers to actually make investments. Um, but I think that the one thing that we haven't touched upon is that open banking and open finance actually don't in any way in real terms solve for financial inclusion. So you're you're still leaving a segment of the population behind as you go on this journey. And I think there does need to be some thought given to, you know, what what more could be done within the open banking space, the open finance space to actually assist all of the or mitigate some of the challenges that exist today in actually bringing forward financial inclusion. Because obviously this is all premised on the fact that people have got digital inclusion as well.
0: But there is I'm an opportunity really, here. Uh, there is an opportunity here for open finance to to allow for, for financial inclusion, right? It, it, it is. A, it could be used that way.
3: It 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 is. I, I think at the moment. I mean, I, I think if you look at, um, you know, credit decision. If you look at financial access. If you look at. Um, uh, the decisions that that are made by banks, treasury teams, and risk you know risk departments at banks, um, just the amalgamation of new data that you get from open fi- open banking and then you know definitely open finance, help those decisions. Um, so you know I, if if you're let's say an immigrant who's come to the UK with no credit history. Um, you can actually get a financial product relatively quickly certainly in ten x the speed that you would have done you know prior to open banking just because of the way that you spend you've got a neo bank that you can sign up to in something like a monzo or a starling and you can start actually you know feeding your transactions how much you earn et cetera to that credit provider you know big credit que I mean credit some and, and you know businesses like that have literally made a um that, that, that this is their bread and butter so i, I think whilst it's not necessarily um, financial inclusion in terms of people who don't bank, will they bank? I think it's financial inclusion in terms of opening up new financial products for people that previously just just couldn't get them.
4: I I think that's exactly right. If we think too narrowly about what financial services is, which really is saying what financial services was in the past, um, I think it's easy to say, like, this is going to be really hard to improve in the future. But the same way that, like, Nobody 10 years ago thought of like Shopify as a financial service or fintech app for small businesses that would really help them compete um, and get off of Amazon or compete with bigger merchants. The same thing is happening with open finance kind of democratizing that access. And we see this in the U.S. already. So, you know, most of the neobanks, as well as um, some of the progressive uh, larger banks and even small community banks, Actually made available the stimulus funds five days earlier. Um, the stimulus is hitting people's bank accounts in the United States today on St. Patrick's Day. But like a lot of these neobanks, actually made that money available five days earlier. And you think of that as like a very small difference if you make a hundred k a year. But if you are living paycheck to paycheck, it is a huge difference to have access to those funds earlier. That's how some of these neobanks are going to market and serving segments that traditionally have been underserved. I think on the second point, what is a financial service or where does this data get piped in is going to change dramatically. And we see this both in the UK and in the US market. So things like loyalty apps like Upside, PFM, um, whether it's like Clio and Curve in the UK or you need a budget in the United States, apps that help you uh, make your rental payments better like Canopy. Um, Rhino and Flex in the United States. These are all things that touch on the edge of financial services, um, but are not pure financial services, right? But they benefit from consumers being able to opt in and proactively share their data. And it's actually like, I I keep going back to like the status quo ante, but like this is much better than the credit bureau world Mm -hmm. where there's just a massive data file sitting about you in a centralized credit bureau and certain folks, whether they're like you know, buildings or banks can go and ask about you whenever you want, whenever they want, but you don't really have any insight into what's sitting there and what that data looks like and what it means. So I think we're moving to a better world. We're moving to a world where financial services products will be more diverse and they will be embedded to use the latest hotness into all different types of products.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think I think um, it's quite clear that there are there is scope for an expansion of what, what a financial services product actually is here. And that redefinition is where you start to get more financial inclusion because you, you're blurring the edges, you're blurring the boundaries. Um, Jack, I mean, what, what do you think about this for, for small businesses, perhaps? So, obviously, a lot of what open banking has done has been um, retail customers, but also small businesses. They've been included here in the UK and <clears throat> in a lot of the, the the regulation and in a lot of the the benefits, I suppose, that have been rolled out. Um, what, what about you know open finance for small businesses? What are the benefits that we might see there? Is is credit assessment one of them? I mean, that's that's kind of what Dan just touched on a little bit there.
5: Yeah, I, I think there's this there's an idea that um, consumers have to come and seek out open finance and be attracted to it because it, they understand it. But in actual fact, I think what's more likely is that open finance will be built into life events for consumers. Um, so when, when somebody wants to buy a car, um, you know, a, a teenager wants to buy a car, they'll go to a, a business and they'll have, instead of faffing around with um, paperwork and stuff that they might not have, they'll, they'll be able to plug in their accounts using open finance and get a decision really quickly and a decision that's built for them because it looks at affordability and things likewise when when the person grows up and they want to buy a house instead of having to faff around with all of these bits of paperwork which are really expensive for businesses to process um they'll just plug in open finance and a mortgage decision will follow um so open finance is going to be built into people's life events it's going to it's going to free up a lot of admin for all kinds of businesses um you know small businesses especially won't won't be able to afford to deal in paperwork and you know and and do like passport and driving license checks all of this can be done much more efficiently through um, access to financial data via APIs and um, so i think i think it's all about streamlining and efficiency
0: and I think perhaps that's one of the um, incentives for for businesses to get involved in this. So there may be some providers out there that are thinking, "Okay, this all sounds great, but it sounds like a hell of a lot of work for me to, to build up these APIs or to follow standards or you know whatever is required." Um, do you think that, uh, you know, is is looking at the opportunities enough of an incentive or do organisations that are going to be involved in open finance need more tangible incentives um, to get involved and help their, their customers realise these opportunities? I mean, Adam, do you want to jump in on that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, look, to, to put this infrastructure in place costs a lot of money. Um and, you know, just going all the way back to open banking, I mean, that the CMA9 have paid for the implementation, the OBIE and the infrastructure that, you know, a lot of um, the open banking runs on. And that's in addition to the money that they had to spend to actually, you know, set up these programs initially. And, and you know, if you like, put a sort of an API veneer over their legacy and, uh, you know, expose some of these data points to be able to uh, to, to actually do this. Um If you put that across the pensions industry, the investments industry, the pensions industry, like I'm imagining there's like historical data that's sitting in paper, which like no one's even seen for like the last 15 years. Like you've got to go through a whole process of digitalizing that and then actually making it exposable, you know, via APIs. Um, And a lot of, you know, especially smaller pension providers and others who will fall under the regulations, will fall under this framework, will just think like, my God, like I'm just never going to be able to pay for this. Um, and be, you know, manage it. And I think that really needs um, looking at because what you're looking, I think the ecosystem, especially at the, the top end is there. It's why there's been so much partnerships. It's why there's so much buzz. And people like me who build products like this is the, the great, this is a phenomenal tool uh, and an amazing technology. But I think um, there needs to be some thought that's put to how it's implemented, especially for those who aren't the big boys in some of these industries, because for them, this could become a burden quite quickly. Okay, yeah, well, and, gonna... I mean,
4: that market is like, as these products and services go directly to people, um, we've actually done some data studies where we've seen that bank accounts and card accounts that are connected via Plaid see an increase in transaction frequency, an increase in spends and an increase in direct deposits, which indicates that there is actually like a market incentive to work with open finance, because these are going to be your most active customers and they're going to be doing more things with your account. And therefore, you have more opportunities in the future to market your own products and services, just not exclusively your own products
0: and services. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask the the final question today, which is, um, should we be excited for open finance? I think Dan has just sort of answered this. I think, Dan, at this point, you probably got a one-word answer, which is yes. A
4: hundred percent yes.
0: And, you know, most excited as consumers and
4: small businesses and people who use these products and services, because we are just in the early days, there is so much more that will be built that can be built. And there's so much more collaboration that will happen between, you know, the fintech industry, the financial services industry and the regulators to actually make all of this just seem like a little bit of a blip where we are now compared to where we'll be in five or 10 years.
0: Nilexa, how about you? You've been I think perhaps you're, you're a little bit more cautiously optimistic would be my read, am, or, or am I yes. judging you wrong?
2: No, no, that's a good read. I, I'm absolutely in the yes bucket, but on the basis that we build it right, that we build it with consumer outcomes in mind, with the right protections in place, with a view to how it's going to work in the future. You know, we we should, in the UK, we started open banking and we've now got to revisit open finance. For the UK let's actually do it with open data in mind and let's plan that journey from today so that we know what the roadmap is. We know what we need to sort of think about and plan for. And hopefully that way we actually consumers and businesses, the best outcomes for their financial services.
0: Brilliant. Well, I think that's probably what everybody wants in the long run. I mean, Jack, I get the feeling that you're quite excited as well.
2: Excited but
5: impatient. Um <laughs> <laughs> There's been delays already with open finance. Um, it, was, it started to be consulted on in uh, December 2019 by the FCA and COVID got in the way. Um, and now we're looking at um, legislation, enabling legislation with the Department for Business happening way out in you know, early 2022. Um, I think there's definitely some things that need to be done to keep the lights on from between now and then to keep the momentum of open banking going. Um, and keep the businesses who have entered the market for open banking in the market. Um, things like um, enabling variable recurring payments so that, you know, open banking providers can compete better with cards um, and in e-commerce. So that, that stuff can can be done. It's all been investigated and um, thought through. It just needs, you know, the final push from regulators and government. Um, so definitely excited, but we need some thing to keep momentum
0: chomping at the bit um and adam last by no means least excited or cautious yeah, or that- a mixture of the two
3: I am. I mean, I think the the the, var- the variable recurring payments example is a classic account of you know you can't get too excited yet because it, it does take time. I think like holistically, I look at this as the beginning of like a connected bank account. It, it will change the, the current account forever in terms of what it means, what it shows, um, who it integrates with, and and how proactive other companies can be in terms of tailoring products for you and I think it will become a seamless experience for people that you know the likes of which we just don't know at the moment you know I see this as a foundational Technology for the next twenty years, the, the, tw- maybe more. I think the problem is it could take twenty years to get there. Um, and I and I certainly think at the moment, you know, we won't see any traction in the UK until the OBIE, the entity. It was in the uh, the news this week, and we talked about it on the podcast on Monday. But the OBIE uh, and the reformation of that, and what it means, you know, its structure, who pays for it, is so fundamental to them putting a framework in place to actually build this. Um, if we want to be, if you like, the, the flag bearers of it again in the UK. And I think, you know, it's an amazing, amazing opportunity. And, you know, all the winds are sort of uh, blowing in the right way, but it is going to take time.
0: All right. Well, I think if anybody, hopefully people involved in in making those decisions are listening, because I think we've given them quite a few ideas about how they can get things moving and how they can make sure things happen in a potentially seamless way. Um, but we're going to finish off the show today with a little bit of fun. So we've asked our 11FS followers for some of the myths around open finance that they've heard or picked up or shared. Um, so thank you to everyone who has submitted these. We've picked a few and I'm going to throw four out there and I'm going to get you know one of each of my panel to try and unpack these myths. Um, so the first one is that anyone will be able to initiate transactions on my behalf and I will have no power over my personal data. I think we've pretty much addressed that one quite comprehensively today, but does anybody want to give, give me, who's
3: got a snappy one-liner for that? it's got to be from the tpps i was going to say <laughs> this is this is um,
5: uh, control this fundamental um you know the requirement the legal requirement for a tpp is that they must obtain explicit consent and you know that's something to take really seriously um, it's about informing the consumers about what's happening um you know where the data is being shared who it's being shared with that has to happen up front um and that's what happens in practice and and obviously um there's the added layer of security that you have to authenticate everything with your bank as well. So you have to give your strong customer credentials to the bank every time you do an open banking action. So it's it's not something that can be done without you knowing about it.
0: I'm gonna give that that throw that over to Dan as well because how would you answer that to somebody in the US?
4: I mean fundamentally it's on us as an industry and we're doing this at Plaid which is you know, we have strong customer authentication in the, U- in the UK, and then we do very similar practices of things like requiring multi-factor in the US because, you know, consent is at the heart of open finance. Transparency is at the heart of open finance. We've put information ahead of the flows explaining like what Plaid's role is, and then people are choosing to use these apps. Um, nobody is signing you up uh, unless you opt in. So that's okay. that's how it works.
0: Um, the next one, I don't think I really understand. Maybe one of the panel can explain it to me. The myth is that open finance is weekend bank hours. Does anybody <laughs> understand that?
3: Not when well, I read this, I, I put I, explain with a question mark.
2: <laughs> I took it to mean that, you know, banks only open Monday to Friday and open finance means I'll be open at weekends, which is obviously not the case because... Mm. Uh, banks with online banking are open twenty four seven, and open finance will be available twenty four seven as well.
0: Oh, I see. Okay, okay. No, thank you, Nilix. That makes that makes sense. Um, okay, interesting. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Um, no, no, I think you're almost certainly right. The, 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 my producer is sort of whispering away in the background saying, yeah, so people think that open finance means that the bank is finally always open. But as you very correctly oh. pointed out, an awful lot of banks out there are always open these days. <laughs> um, and then the final one is that, presumably this comes from a banker, and this is open finance, we're bad for my bank, because it will take all my business away. Um, Adam, I don't know, you probably probably have some thoughts on that.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I've I've worked in a bank putting you know open banking in place. And this is... Um, uh, th- this was the fear, uh, as it will be, I'm sure, when open banking starts with all from all the other industries. I think, from a um, from a banking perspective, if you're a banker, you need to look at the opportunities. You know, not just you know how people are going to potentially take your data or the data that you hold on behalf of the customers, but also uh, the other way around, how you can you know start creating fantastic propositions for your customer base um, so that they interact with you and engage with you more. Uh, from a consumer perspective, um, I, you know, I I think I don't. I, I, Customers thinking like that, I'm not sure. Um, I think customers are probably thinking, or hopefully are thinking if they know about it, that this is going to be great for them because they're going to get some fantastic products tailored uh, tailored to what they need.
0: Yeah, I don't think there are many retail customers out there who think open finance will be bad for their bank. I don't think that's probably (laughs) their primary thought when they hear something like this. Um, Does anybody else have any thoughts on that one? You know, Dan, what would you say to a big bank that said, oh, you know, open finance is going to be bad for me. It's going to, if I, you know, for example, if I were to work with Plaid or a similar provider, all my business will disappear. How would you how would you react to that?
4: Yeah, so I mean, it's a level playing field. Everybody has the same chance to build valuable products and services. And, you know, some of the biggest financial institutions are spending massively to figure out what those value propositions will look like in the future. And I think the ones that get there and figure it out and then figure out distribution, like how to go to market, they'll be able to benefit tremendously and i think even on the smaller bank side it's about making the right types of partnerships so you know we partnered with jack henry in the united states to enable uh plat exchange for 350 small community banks and immediately that's going to be able to level them up to the same types of apis that today only bigger banks have the resources to build so you know you have to have the right partnerships and you have to have the right approach to serving your consumers but if you have that in mind as opposed to this I'm worried about being disrupted mentality. You'll be able to compete and win.
0: And, and uh, Jack, how about you? I suspect you probably had some similar conversations with some nervous bankers in your time.
5: Well, the, the competition authority, when it initiated open banking, um, said that it was to make the banks work harder, um, and it was to improve their services as well as introduce competition with third parties. So I've seen, I've seen a lot, my personal bank has improved its app tremendously since the initiation of open banking. Right. But I think this is it's working. It's a it's a competition initiative at the end of the day. And like Dan said, you know, the firms that work hardest will rise to the top, whether they're banks and, or TPPs.
0: And Nilexa, I'll give you the final word. What's your thought on this? What would you say to bankers who think open finance is bad for them?
2: Well, I would say bankers beware because <laughs> they don't have their game. It will be bad. them. That's the whole point of open banking, open finance is better services, better competition, better outcomes. And I think what we must bear in mind is that open finance is not just about the banks. It's investments, it's insurance, it's the pension industry. You know, they all need to start thinking about what are we providing for our consumers and how can we make it better? And if they're not good enough, then actually do they deserve to be in business?
0: Absolutely. I think that's a a very good point to leave today's conversation at. Um, That wraps us up for our third Digital Fintech Insider After Dark. Thank you so much to everyone for joining us. Thank you so much to all of my guests. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, Jack, we'll start with you.
5: Um, We've got a pretty good blog, the True Layer blog. I'm regularly blogging on there, so have a read. Perfect. Dan, how about you?
4: Um, same at Plaid.com. Uh, we have a lot of information on our blog. And then if you want to get in touch with me personally, I'm just Dan at Plaid.com or DBCon on
0: Twitter. Brilliant. Nilixa. how about you? Uh, best place to get in touch with me is via
2: LinkedIn or at nelixer at thepayregexpert.com.
0: Brilliant. And last, by no means least, Adam.
3: Uh, yeah, LinkedIn's good. Uh, AdamD8 on Twitter. Uh, Adam at 11FS.com. or we'll just check out the next podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Thank you to our media and marketing team for putting this event together today. If you want to stay up to date on all our content, do follow FinTech Insiders on Twitter and 11FS on YouTube. And we hope to welcome you back to more events in the future. Thank you again for joining us and have a good night.